Good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 6. We will get there momentarily. And as you're turning to Joshua chapter 6, I want to ask you to help me fill in the blank in the following phrase. What jumps into your mind when I say the following phrase? Sin is blank. Think about that. Shout a couple of them back at the screen. Uh, You may have said that sin is dangerous. There may have been someone that said, well, sin is fun. Maybe sin is deadly, sin is progressive, sin is contagious would be a good answer. Someone might have said sin coop is just flat out wrong. But here's how I'd like to finish that sentence this morning. Sin is selfish. Synonyms of the word selfish are self-centered, stingy, greedy, and self-seeking. When I think of someone being selfish, I think of someone who cares about their own needs more than they do the needs of others. And there's two really primary reasons why sin is so selfish. Number one is because it always puts me first, whether the sin is greed, gossip, lust. The primary passion of almost all sin is to make us feel good. And that's one reason why sin is selfish. The second reason sin is so selfish is because it affects other people. Our self-seeking sin doesn't just affect us when we do things that disobey God it almost always affects someone else. Chuck Swindoll says, I can't find any indication that sin is ever isolated. He says, sin to some degree always affects others. There may be an occasional exception, but 99.9% of the time, your sin is gonna hurt or affect someone else. There was a great quarterback about 10, 15 years ago. I loved his game. Guy by the name of Steve McNair played pretty much his entire career with the Tennessee Titans. Steve McNair was murdered in June of 2009, and I'm not sure that there was an NFL player in that era that was loved more in his NFL city than Steve McNair was loved in Nashville, Tennessee. He had a wife, he had four kids, he was thought of as an incredible family man. Well, after his murder, it was discovered that that Steve McNair cheated regularly on his wife. He actually had a condo with one of his girlfriends. He uh, had a cat, bought her a Cadillac Escalade. He had actually vacationed outside the country with this girlfriend. And he was actually murdered by this girlfriend because she thought he was cheating on him with yet another girlfriend. Not only did Steve McNair's sin cost him his life, but it affected a lot of people around him as well. Maybe you would argue, Coop, I I don't know how my greed affects other people. How does my desire to have all the latest toys affect someone else? Well, maybe for one thing, it probably sends a message to your non-Christian friends that Jesus isn't very satisfying. They see you constantly craving all this other stuff, and so your non-Christian friends and and family are left to assume that, that Jesus isn't all that he's cracked up to be. So our greed, our, our sin of greed, affects others because it hurts our witness or our example. How about lust? Maybe you're saying, Coop, how does lusting after beautiful women privately hurt other people? How does my private viewing of sexually explicit material hurt other people? And my initial response would be this, like, how are those choices affecting your marriage? Maybe a better question for our young people that are watching this morning uh, how, do those, how is the devil going to use those decisions to affect your future marriage? Do you think that your desire for this stuff automatically ends or turns off the day you get married? Do you think the devil stops tempting you the day you put a ring on a finger? It doesn't quite work that way, does it? Back in 2007, a minister here in Columbus talked about a study where uh, they determined that pornography 
is more addictive than crack cocaine. Some of you may be familiar with country music superstar Sarah Evans. And several years ago, I remember reading about her divorce of Craig Shelsky, who was a Republican politician and her husband of 15 years. Well, what caused the separation between Craig Shelsky and Sarah Evans was lust because Craig Shelsky was addicted to pornography. He was looking at it on the family computer with his children in the house. And rumor has it, he had an affair with the family nanny as well. You see, Craig Shelsky thought his self-seeking, self-serving lust wouldn't hurt anyone, but it did. His marriage is over, his family is destroyed, his reputation is ruined, sin affects other people. Well, gossip seems pretty harmless and insignificant, doesn't it? You know what the Bible says about our tongue? The Bible says our tongue is a raging evil that's full of deadly poison. You have no idea, we have no idea how a gossip can affect a friend or a student or a coworker. It can destroy your friendship. It can destroy their self-image. Have you ever seen what gossip and, and uh, hurtful words can do to a sports team? What kind of impact does it have on a sports team when the guys on the team are tearing each other down instead of building each other up? What kind of effect do hurtful words from parents have on a coach. I have so many friends that I, I went to college with, and I, I think I've said this before from this platform, all they wanted to be was a teacher and a basketball coach. And so many of them are no longer coaching because they're tired of anonymous emails and hurtful words that they get from parents. Gossip can demolish a team, a coach or an organization, and it can affect a church. Like if you and I are constantly griping about things we don't like in this church, do we really think that other people are going to want to be a part of it? If you want to be a part of an incredible ministry here at East Point Christian Church, then we have to make sure we control our tongues. Our tongues can affect our friends, our ball teams, and even our church. Bob Russell was the longtime senior minister at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And I want you to listen to what he writes about how sin affected their church. Bob Russell says, years ago, our church hit a plateau. The services were dead. There was no growth. Something seemed to be missing. We tried different activities and implemented some creative ideas, but we just couldn't seem to get the church moving again. He said, I sat in the office after services one Sunday and thought, something is wrong. I can't feel the moving of God's spirit among us. Two weeks later, we discovered that one of our key leaders had been having an affair for the past year. It was not easy for the elders to determine how to handle the situation. The leader was asked to step down from his position while he tried to get his life back in order. Bob Russell went on to say, I was concerned that the crisis might have a devastating consequence on our church, but almost immediately after the situation was resolved, the church exploded in an outpouring of God's spirit and a renewed sense of joy among the people. He said, for God's hand of blessing to be upon your church, there must be a degree of holiness among the leaders. He said, God doesn't require perfection, but he does require sincerity and effort. The leaders must demonstrate for the people how to live like Jesus Christ. Did you catch what Bob Russell said? He basically said, sin in the camp weakens the army. When there was sin among the leadership, the church there couldn't do anything right. It wasn't until after that situation was resolved that God's blessing returned to Southeast Christian Church. It was then and only then that the church exploded. Chuck Swindoll says, as a pastor, 
I have seen one person's private sin break the hearts of family members as well as hinder the work of an entire church. Swindoll went on to say, as a nation, we have seen more than one president's private sin corrupt an administration. He says, sin in the camp is a powerful enemy to a fruitful ministry. Now let me clarify something right now. Bob Russell and Chuck Swindoll aren't referring to the sin of non-Christians in the church. Those people are supposed to be full of sin. Here's a crazy thought. People who don't know Jesus sin, and they typically sin a lot. People who don't know Jesus are supposed to be selfish. They're supposed to live for the pleasures of this world because they don't know Jesus. They don't have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus made it crystal clear during his time here on earth that he wanted to reach those people and he wants us to reach those people. Remember, it was Jesus who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So the spiritually sick people are not gonna hurt the success of the church with their sin. That's not what we're talking about. God wants those people in church. We're talking about Christians who deliberately and repeatedly sin, especially those that are in what we would call a platform position or a leadership position. I've always viewed my, my home as my biggest and most important platform position. My boys are older now. I've got a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old, and an 18-year-old. But I would still tell you that they watch every move that I make. It's funny because Ricky, Price, and Ty, they cheer for every team that I cheer for. I guess that's not a big surprise, but they love the Buckeyes. They bark like the Browns. They want to wear clothes with the Cleveland Indians Chief Wahoo logo on it. The things that I love are the things that they love. Every decision that I make is going to have a huge impact on them. They see what I watch on TV. They see the movies that Lynn and I save on our DVR. They see what we laugh at. They see how I treat their mommy. They see how I act when things don't go my way. They see what's most important to me. And if Jesus is number one in my life, it's probably, he's probably gonna be number one to them. But if money or sports or stuff is most important in my life, then I'll bet you my last dollar that their priorities are gonna be way out of whack as well. Some of you are watching this this morning and, and you may be a part of a family where the only person that is experiencing Jesus on a daily basis right now is you. Many of you are part of families with young children and I, I wanna remind you this morning that your priorities, your vocabulary, your viewing habits, your spirit, your obedience doesn't just affect you. It will likely determine whether or not the rest of your family ever embraces Jesus as well. And I hope and pray that you understand that. This morning, I want to look at a, a story, an example in the Bible, where one man's sin had a huge effect on God's people, the Israelites. And before we look at Joshua chapter 6, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit. The event that we're about to read takes place shortly after the Battle of Jericho. With God's help, the nation of Israel experienced a miraculous victory over the people of Jericho. The defeat that we're going to read about is just a short time after Jericho. To lose this battle of I after winning the battle of Jericho would be like the Ohio State Buckeye football team beating Alabama in week number two and losing to Bowling Green in week number three. That's how big of an upset that this had to be. And before we dig into this passage, I want to talk to you a little bit about soldiers in ancient times. In ancient times, a soldier was compensated 
with some of the plunder that he took after a victory. Normally, after a city was taken, the soldiers were encouraged to grab all the valuables that they could carry, and that was considered the warrior's pay. But that wasn't supposed to happen here in Jericho. In this instance, the soldiers were to take nothing home. Look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. It says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So the riches from the city of Jericho were to be handled differently from the riches from all other victories. And the Lord makes it clear if it wasn't, that there was a quote-unquote liability to the Israelites, and that liability could include destruction and trouble. Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. The spies basically said, don't sweat this one, Joshua. This city is nothing. We don't even need a full squad to win it. Let's continue on. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of this country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Verse 13, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Verse 16. 
Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerites. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua together with all Israel took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. It's a long passage of scripture. A couple things that jump out to me as we read that passage. Notice the way that God talks to Joshua about the sin. Look at Joshua 7, verse 11 again. It, God says, Israel has sinned. He says, they have violated my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. Achan was the only guy that participated in this sin. Yet God says that Israel has sinned. God considered one man's sin equivalent to the sin of an entire nation. An entire nation suffered because one man disobeyed God. You could argue the scariest phrase in the entire Bible is at the end of verse 12. Look what God says. He says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to instructions. For God to say, I will not be with you anymore, is serious business. Can you imagine what you would look like, your life would look like, if God wasn't with you anymore? What would our nation look like if God wasn't with us anymore? What would this church or this youth ministry look like if God wasn't with us anymore? Another interesting point is in verse 26 of Joshua 7. There, it refers to God as having a fierce anger about the whole situation. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't just say that God was displeased. It doesn't just say that, that Achan's sin dishonored God. God doesn't just say, don't go do that again. No, it says that God had fierce anger because of Achan's sin. We hear so much about the love of God and the grace of God, and I get it, that's a good thing. But may I remind you that sin angers God. Sin breaks the heart of God. God doesn't hate sinners, but God hates sin. 
I find verses 14 and 15 interesting in Joshua 7. Each tribe came before the Lord. Then the clan that the Lord selected came forward family by family. Then the family that the Lord selected came forward man by man. You may remember this was the same process with which Saul was elected as Israel's first king back in 1 Samuel 10. Why do you think that God orchestrated such a drawn-out public search in this situation. God knows everything. Why didn't he just say, there he is. There's Achan. There's the man. We can't be sure. But some scholars believe he was so methodical about the process so that Achan would have multiple opportunities, several golden opportunities, we'll call them, to step up, confess, and take his punishment. But throughout the entire process, Achan never says a word. The last thing I want to point out to you is at the end of Joshua 7, look Again, at verses 24 and 25, it says that the silver, the gold, and the robe that Achan illegally acquired were destroyed. It says that Achan was destroyed. But notice who else was punished there. It says that Achan's sons and his daughters were stoned and burned as well. Remember that 36 additional men died in the battle of Ai because of Achan's sin. The story of Achan is just another example of why sin is so selfish. The entire nation of Israel suffered because of Achan's greed. And notice that Achan didn't have what we would call a platform position. Like this wasn't Joshua, this wasn't Moses, this was Abraham or Abraham. This was Achan who was merely a soldier in the Israelite army, yet the entire nation still suffered because of his sin. You and I are soldiers in God's army and believe it or not, how we live our lives as soldiers will have a very big impact on the rest of the brigade as well. I don't want you to leave here this morning, though, thinking you have to be perfect. I don't want you to think that, that God is going to burn you and your children if you ever screw up. Even though we as Christians have the Holy Spirit alive in us, we're still going to struggle with temptation and sin. God knows that. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross. He knew that we would be desperate for grace because of our sin. When we're, not, uh, when we're talking about this morning, it's not sin that we happen to stumble upon while we're living for Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. The sin we're talking about this morning is when we blatantly rebel against God and his ways. When we rebel, we don't just stumble upon sin. Like we indulge in sin. It's when we live every day like we're an unbeliever. It's when sin dominates us. It's when sin is, is premeditated. Have you ever heard that word, premeditated? That's a big word in our judicial system that simply means pre-planned. There's a big difference in our judicial system between the guy that pre-plans the murder of someone and the guy who gets in a fight in a bar and spontaneously decides to pull out a gun and kill somebody. A premeditated murder, pre-planned murder could cost you your life in the state of Ohio. Deciding to kill someone spontaneously almost never will. And it's kind of the same way with God. Premeditated, pre-planned sin is a lot more severe in God's eyes than the sin that we kind of stumble upon in our daily walk with God. When we choose daily to live for ourselves instead of living for Christ, now God is not pleased and it's in those situations that God may remove his blessing from a church or from a youth group or maybe even from a nation. And as I said earlier, the removal of God's blessing is serious, serious business. I love how Chuck Swindoll put it in the book that I'm working through in this series. He says, one Judas 
can affect an entire group of disciples. One Achan can stop a nation in its tracks. One person with unconfessed, unresolved sin buried in his or her tent can have untold negative impact on everything and everyone he or she touches. Swindoll says, sin in the camp is deadly, even in this age of grace. Maybe the best way I can summarize everything we've talked about this morning is to put it in medical terms. And I'm, I'm not a doctor, but um, I know your heart pumps out blood through one main artery called the dorsal aorta. The main artery then divides and branches out into many smaller arteries so that each region of your body has its own system of arteries supplying it with fresh, oxygen-rich blood. A blocked artery, uh, you've heard of someone maybe having a blocked artery, and it's serious business. A blocked artery can be caused by cholesterol, which is a fatty substance that can build up along the walls of your arteries. And over time, the buildup can cause the walls to narrow, the arteries to narrow, so that blood flow back to the heart is slowed and sometimes even stopped. And when your heart doesn't get enough of this oxygen-rich blood, a heart attack occurs. Depending on the severity of, of the artery block, there are several options for a repair. If there are multiple severe blockages, a person will likely have heart surgery. What a cardiac surgeon does is he takes a healthy blood vessel from another part of your body, usually the leg, and he uses that to construct a detour around a blocked artery near the heart. Another popular option for less severe blockages is what they call an angioplasty, which is when a tube, a catheter, with a tiny balloon at the end of it is inserted into a clogged artery. As the balloon is inflated, it flattens this fatty substance, this deposit, and it reopens the artery. After the angioplasty, a stainless steel tube called a stent is placed in the artery to help keep it open. And the point of all this medical talk is this, a blocked artery in your heart is very serious business. You want the blood in your arteries to flow as smoothly and efficiently as possible. And I would argue the same is true with God. Our goal as Christians is to get as much of God flowing through our system as we can because it's through God flowing in our lives that we find joy and we find peace and we find hope and we find meaning and we find forgiveness. We want to be a vessel that God can flow freely through. And that can't happen when we're living for sin. It can't happen when we indulge in sin. It can't happen when we have unresolved sin. You see, sin in our life is a lot like cholesterol. It hinders the work of God in our lives. So let me ask you a candid question this morning. How clogged is the connection between you and God? Do you have a 20% blockage? Is it 50% blocked? Maybe it's 95% blocked. I imagine some of you this morning need a, a, a new heart. Like sin has, has dominated your life so long, spiritually speaking, you need to ask Jesus to give you a brand new heart. And he can do that if you let him. I imagine some of you watching this this morning need a spiritual angioplasty. Like every day, it seems like your relationship with Jesus is getting more and more clogged up. And I want to remind you there's a way to re-expand your heart for God. There is a way to open your heart back up to God. But for that to happen, you need to confess your sin. The Bible says you need to repent or turn your back on sin. One of the coolest phrases in the Bible is Jeremiah 31, 34, where God says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. God's desire is to remove all the junk that is in your life 
that has kept you from having a healthy relationship with him. And not only does God promise to remove it, if you read Jeremiah 31, 34, he promises not to remember it as well. Consider God your surgeon. Because of Jesus, he's got all the tools necessary to repair your heart and to bridge the gap between you and him. But it's up to you whether or not you'll allow him to perform the operation. If you've got sin that you need to confess, if you've got a heart that needs repair, man, I want to encourage you to make things right with Jesus today, this morning, right now. He died to give you a new hope he died to give you a new purpose, and he died to give you a new heart.